Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a really interesting guest, Dr. Bruce Grayson. He's a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral studies at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And he's recently written a book about near-death experiences that's coming out the very beginning of March. That's called After. A doctor who is what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. So, yeah, coming out March 2nd, 2021. So I wanted to talk to him about it. So, Bruce, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be here with you today. I know you talk about it in the book. Would you mind just giving people a teaser of how you first encountered near-death experiences? Uh, Sure. Well, let me start off by saying that I was raised in a scientific household. My father was a chemist, and we lived in a world where what you see is what you get. There was no talk about anything non-physical. Uh, we never gave it a thought to anything spiritual or religious. It's not that we were anti-spiritual. We just It just never came up in our family. So I went through college and medical school with a totally materialistic mindset, uh, never realizing there was much of anything else. And then my first year in my psychiatric residency training, within a couple of months, I encountered a patient who was unconscious in the emergency room. And I was down the hall talking to her roommate because I couldn't talk to the patient herself. And the next morning when the patient woke up and I started talking to her, she recognized me immediately from the night before and said she had seen me talking to her roommate down the hall. Now that just stunned me entirely. I had no idea how this could happen. I thought she was playing some kind of a trick, but I was uh, you know, a new intern. I didn't have time to think about these things. So I just filed it away as an you know, unexplained event and put it in the back of my mind for a few years. I mentioned you had, a, I guess, a ketchup stain on your tie, and she even saw that. Yes. I carefully buttoned up my jacket so that nobody could see that, but it was so hot in the interview room that I, I opened it, and no one saw it except her roommate. And she told me about it the next morning, and I, that just blew me away. And from then, you, I guess it sounds like in the book, you kind of put away the idea of NDEs for a while, but you started working with them directly? Well, I did put it away. I, I had one other patient uh, later that year who also had a a type of near-death experience that didn't involve me. And I just thought that these are just weird things. And then a few years later, I met Raymond Moody, who had published a book called Life After Life in 1975 that gave us the name near-death experiences and for the first time in the English language described what these experiences were. And I realized these were not just rare things that my patients were talking about. They were common events that happened quite frequently to patients on the verge of death. And since I had no way of explaining them, that provoked me to, to say, well, as a scientist, as a skeptic, I need to get to the bottom of this. And here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand them. And also in the book, it looks like you tried every way you could to disprove them or to find out you know, <laughs> what, what could be causing them. Can you talk about uh, that? Right. Not disprove them because I knew obviously they really happened to these people. They had information they couldn't have gotten by normal means. And yet, I, being a materialist, I tried to figure out how can this possibly be? And I looked at all the things that would make sense to look at when someone is near death. Are they deprived of oxygen? 
Do they have too much carbon dioxide on board? Is it the drugs they're given? Is it chemicals produced by the brain? Is there unusually uh, going on in certain parts of the brain? And over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, we've been able to collect data to test a lot of these hypotheses. And we found that not one of them holds up in a near-death situation. That is, people who are close to death have a better oxygen when they have near-death experiences, have less carbon dioxide, don't have any different electrical activity in their brains than people who don't have near-death experiences. And so, How has this um, changed your personal beliefs? Sure. One of the most profound things to me as a psychiatrist is how these experiences change the lives of the people who have them. They are never the same. And I've talked to people in their 80s and 90s who had their experience as teenagers, and they say, it's like it happened yesterday. I've never been the same. And I found that some of that rubs off on me and on other people as well, of the people who are, you know, they're their significant others. You know, they, they, uh, they come back with a, a very spiritual outlook on life, so to speak. They don't value material possessions, uh, power, prestige, status. They're much more concerned with interpersonal relationships. They're, they tend to be very uh, caring and loving people. Uh, let me give you an example. One person I, I knew was a, uh, a career Marine who was shot uh, through the chest in Vietnam, and he was rushed to a combat hospital in the Philippines. And during surgery there, uh, to remove the shrapnel from, shrapnel from his chest, he had an elaborate near-death experience. And when he came back, um, the thought of violence was just inconceivable to him. Now, he had been a career Marine and couldn't imagine doing anything else. So he did go back to Vietnam and tried to lead his platoon and found that he just could not shoot his gun. So he ended up leaving the Marines and coming back to the States and basically becoming a healthcare worker. And I've got story after story about people who were in violent professions, whether it's criminal activity or military or police or people who were in very competitive businesses who just could not go back to that lifestyle, ended up going into some helping profession, either teaching or healthcare or the ministry, something like that. Have you had people that uh, had a near-death experience years before, and now you are caring for them as they were about to die for real? And were they peaceful about it? Were they still worried? Like, what, How does it translate to the experience of when you actually do pass away? It's interesting because they do have a very strong sense that death is not the end. They feel that they were dead and still were thinking and feeling and had some kind of life. And no matter what they think about the details of that afterlife world, they're all convinced that this world is not the whole story, that there's something else after. And that makes them not afraid of dying anymore. And paradoxically, being not afraid of dying makes them not afraid of living either. Because they're not afraid of losing life, they're more inclined to take risks, to live life to the fullest, and it gives them a much richer and more fulfilling and meaningful life. Now, I should also add, though, that doesn't, that, that doesn't mean they're blasé about um, other people's deaths. When they lose a loved one themselves, they still grieve. Even though they may feel confident that the loved one is still surviving in some place, they still feel the pain of the separation from them. So what are some of the commonalities that people had in their stories? This was interesting because I had assumed that what happens in a near-death experience is based on your expectations. And it turns out that's not true at all. Whether you knew about near-death experiences before you came close to death does not affect your experience at all. I've talked to people from different cultures. And if you look back historically, there are accounts of near-death experiences from the ancient Greeks and Romans that are exactly like the ones we hear today. People generally all over the world will have the same experience, but they may interpret it differently based on their cultural background. 
And in fact, many people, when they start to tell you about their near-death experience, say there are no words to describe it. So we have to get them to use whatever familiar metaphors they have. Now, most people all over the world will talk about leaving their physical bodies, about uh, feeling a tremendous sense of overwhelming peace and well-being. They often talk about encountering some warm, loving being of light, which many of them interpret as some type of deity which radiates unconditional love. They may be guided through a review of their entire lives. And at some point, are either told they need to come back or make a decision to come back. Now, they all say, or most of them say, they encountered a warm, loving being of light. When you talk to Christians in the United States, they may say that was God or that was Christ, whereas people from other cultures are less likely to put that label on it. And in fact, many of them will say, well, I'll say that's God because I don't know how else to talk to you about it. But it's not like the God I was taught in church. Yeah, they they recognize themselves that these are just metaphors they're using. For example, many people describe going through a long, dark space that we call a tunnel. And people in the United States often call it a tunnel. People in countries where there aren't a lot of tunnels will talk about going into a cave or a well. And one person here I interviewed who was a truck driver talked about getting sucked into a tailpipe. So your cultural background determines how you're going to interpret the things you have. Very interesting. Did this so it changed people's beliefs after they had the the NDE? You said they went into different careers, were more yes. caring about relationships. What about their spiritual beliefs? Did that affect the, the degree to which they were religious or weren't religious? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Uh, it's interesting that many of them do not become more religious. They often, in fact, become less devoted to any particular religion, but they become much more spiritual. And they're likely to say that they feel equally at home in any house of worship or just out in nature. And they appreciate the ritual, the music and so forth of all different religions, but don't feel that any particular one religion has a monopoly on on the truth. Yeah, that makes sense. What's... Um... I don't know, like over the the experiences that you've heard, like how did you feel yourself change? How did you feel like your beliefs changed? Or, you know, as you tried to disprove this or figure out, oh, we can just write this off to this phenomena or that, and it didn't work. Like, what do you feel like over the past, I guess it's been, what, 40 years? Uh, how has your perception changed? Right. Well, uh, you know, I went into science thinking we were going to get all the answers, and it became very obvious that that wasn't going to happen. And the near-death experiences I talked to all had the attitude that, well, why do you need certainty? What's going to happen is going to happen, and it's going to be all right. You know, things all work out in the end for them. And they, they kind of say to me, don't be so concerned about trying to put down an answer in black and white or in English words. It just can't be done, and it's okay. And I've become, over the decades, very comfortable now with living with the unknown and not having to have all the answers. I'm not sure that I have a still have a belief in anything. I think if I do find myself surviving death, I certainly won't be surprised. 
but I can't say I have any certainty about what, about what specifically will happen after death. Yeah, well, fortunately, I guess no one really knows for sure. It gave me comfort to read the stories. Like I found as I was reading the book, I was looking forward to, all right, just give me one more story. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, heard, I've heard thousands of them myself, and I, I still look forward to each one. They're all different, and they all are seemingly tailor-made for the individual, and yet there are so many consistencies amongst different people and across different cultures. It's hard to just write them off as expectations. Yeah, you know what I thought might be um, pretty cool is if um, someone's in hospice and you had a collection of these stories and, you know, someone came around and read a few of them to the person mm-hmm. every day for comfort. What, what do you think of that idea? Well, we have tried to do some research with, uh, with hospice populations. And most, most hospice workers are very reluctant to get their patients involved with research because their primary concern is with the comfort of the patient. And they don't want anything to be interfering with their efforts to provide comfort to them. So we have to be very careful about imposing our own thoughts, our own perceptions on the patient and pretty much just let them talk about what they're perceiving. Now, interestingly, many, many patients in hospice will have repeated bouts with near-death states as they approach their own deaths, and they will have near-death experiences and they will talk with us about them. And then we can encourage them to explore it on their own and decide how do they make sense out of it. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So do you see that people in hospice as they have near-death experiences, do they become more relaxed about passing or, or do they get more worried or what happens? No, they do become much more relaxed. And in fact, many of them will talk about being greeted in their near-death experience by deceased loved ones who've gone on before. And they talk about how that makes them feel very comfortable about what's coming for them after they, they die. And that also makes the uh, the surviving families feel much better about the, the loved one's passing. Yeah, that seemed to be a common theme in a lot of the stories they saw someone that had died long ago and they spoke with them in their own fashion the person said it's not time you have to go back they didn't want to go back the one thing you mentioned which was unusual is i guess there were a couple stories where the person that was in their nde was still alive telling them to go back well actually that that does happen in very rare occasions what happens more often is that a person in a near-death experience will meet someone who had died but they didn't know that the person had died. So there's no expectation of, oh, I'm going to meet this, this loved one. And they meet this person they thought was still alive, and they're very surprised by it. And then they wake up and tell someone about it. And later, maybe a day or two later, they find out that person had actually died just before the near-death experience. And we have no way of explaining that type of experience. Yeah, that's crazy. What about in the experiences where they meet someone that is alive and the person is still alive after the NDE? Have they ever gone and talked to that person and told them, hey, you were in my NDE, and this is what you said? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, yes, there, there have been some, some situations like that. Um, as I said, they are very rare, but occasionally someone will be in a near-death situation, often in a hospital, and they will have a near-death event, and they will sense someone in the family who's still alive praying for them to return and pleading with them to return. They can't communicate with them in that situation, but they are aware that the person is as telling them to return and they do. And later when they talk to the uh, surviving family member, they, the family member will say, yes, I was trying to cheer you on at that point and trying to tell you to come back. Wow. That must be super impactful to the person yeah. they tell that to. They must be like, whoa. You know? 
Yeah, it is. The, the things that are, that are so hard to explain have very strong emotional impact on people who hear about. How do you find that, uh, you know, other doctors and medical staff you work with and other people, how do they respond to these NDEs? Um, are there certain common responses, you know, oh, that's hogwash or, you know, the, like, what have you noticed about people's responses? That's an interesting question, Rich. Uh, you see the whole range of responses. You know, back in the, in the early 1980s, when we were first started doing this research, very few doctors had heard about them, and most of them were quite skeptical of it and thought, well, these things are not really happening. It's just one or two crazy patients who are telling you these stories. And as there's been more and more publicity about near-death experiences, more and more doctors are asking their patients about them, and they're finding that they really are fairly common. Most uh, estimates are about 10 to 20% of people who come close to death will report a near-death experience. And in fact, in the last decade, there have been several very good books written by physicians who had their own near-death experiences. And whereas, you know, 40 years ago, when I tried to talk to doctors about this, they didn't know what I was talking about. Now they're very open to it. And in fact, they want to learn more about them because they do affect the patients. And anything that affects their patients' lives, they want to know about. Yeah, you said a lot of the people were, were hesitant when you, you know, you'd ask in a very gentle way. Yes, yes. What I saw in the book, you know, what, what did you notice what happened? And then it sounds like they would look at you with a kind of strange look in their eye, and then they would slowly open up and tell you what happened. Well, I am a psychiatrist, and people are reluctant <laughs> to tell psychiatrists strange stories. So I really have to uh, kind of prove to them that I'm, I'm going to take them seriously. And I started in my research early on talking to people as soon as they recovered, and then again every month for a while. And I would find that people would slowly open up to me over the months as they gave me a little bit, and I seemed to take it um, seriously. And the next month, they tell me a little more and a little more and a little more. There are some people that I've known for 30, 40 years, and they still have some parts of their experience they don't trust me with. Some of them are just so personal or uh, so sacred to them, they don't want to share them. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I thought that they, uh, they told you everything. So, so some people literally told you there's more, but I just I don't want to say. Right, right. They may say, this was for me, not for anybody else. I need to deal with it, you know, and it's not something to be shared. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, something else you mentioned, well, a bunch of the stories, the person was free of their physical body and free of their physical brain. And they felt like, I don't know if I'm putting this right, but they felt more complete and they didn't want to go back into their physical body because they felt like it constrained them, either because they were in pain or for whatever reason. But um, you mentioned that the the physical brain may constrain the mind. I thought that was like super interesting. Can you talk more about that? Right. This was very strange for me as a, as a materialist that I grew up thinking that the mind is what the brain does. The brain creates all of our thoughts and feelings. And here I was encountering people whose brains had pretty much shut down. And in some cases, they had flat EEGs showing no electric activity in the brain at all. And yet when they woke up or when they were resuscitated, they told me their thinking was sharper and clearer than ever. Their emotions were more vivid than ever. Their perceptions were clearer than ever. And yet their brains were not functioning. I didn't understand how this could possibly be. When you look back through history, though, going back to Hippocrates 2,000 years ago, there's been this thought in some physicians, uh, it's been a minority most of the time, that the brain does not create the mind, but kind of filters the mind for us much the way a cell phone will, will receive signals from outside and translate them into sound so you can, you can hear them. You know, without, when your cell phone goes dead, 
you can't hear someone calling you, but they can still call. You just can't hear them. And some people have thought that the brain acts like that. It's a receiver and transmitter of the thoughts in the mind. So that when you're normally in normal life, you do require the brain to translate these thoughts for you. But when the brain shuts down, your thoughts can still come through somehow. I don't know how, but it does seem that the connection between the mind and the brain breaks down under extreme circumstances like near-death experiences. And there are other experiences, too, in which the mind-brain connection seems to break down. Oh, really? What what other kinds of experiences? Well, there's something called um, terminal lucidity, um, in which people who have uh, severe brain disease, such as advanced Alzheimer's disease, and have not been able to speak, communicate at all, or recognize loved ones for months or sometimes years, and then suddenly they will become completely lucid, recognize people, carry on coherent conversations, say very meaningful things, and then within hours or sometimes days, they will die. It's as if when the brain deteriorates sufficiently, the mind can come through without the brain filtering it. Now, this was a very strange idea to me that the brain filters the mind. But if you look at the way the body works, our eyes filter um, visual input. We don't see all the... uh, the colors of the spectrum that are there. You know, certainly other animals see spectrums that we don't see. Our ears filter out some sounds that dogs hear. So all our senses filter out some input and just let through what's important to us for our physical survival. And it's like the brain does that also. There are things that the mind thinks of that don't have immediate uh, relevance to our physical survival. So the brain just filters them out and just lets through those thoughts and feelings that are relevant to survival in the physical world. And when the brain shuts down, that filtering stops, and we're, we have access to the whole content of the mind. Yeah, that's interesting, because there's also, I guess, the reticular activating system, which is a secondary filter. So, like, you right. know, the, the, always the old story, you buy a new Toyota Camry, and all of a sudden you start seeing Toyota Camrys everywhere. And they were there, <laughs> right. and they were within your purview, but you just didn't right. notice them. So I guess right. there's multiple levels of filtering, cultural levels and... All kinds, you know. Definitely, definitely. Our expectations play a great role in filtering what we see and, and recognize. Well, you know what would be interesting in the future if people are actually able to do brain transplants? Wouldn't it be crazy if you did a brain transplant and someone had the same mind afterwards, but they had a different personality because the wrinkles and folds of their brain were physically different, which channeled their mind, which is, you know, it sounds like maybe apart from the brain in a different way. It put different filters on it than what they had before. That's an interesting speculation. I know that when your cell phone dies and you get a new one, you still hear just as well. So I don't know whether brains are interchangeable in that regard or not. They may well not be. Yeah, when you talked about you know Alzheimer's, you know physically, I guess plaques are building up and the brain is changing structural mm-hmm. shape, and so that's affecting your ability to think and do other things. Right. Um, so that's why I wondered that. It'd be weird if you could, even if you didn't do a brain transplant, but if you were able to alter the structure of someone's brain. It would probably lead to a, you know, a small or maybe a large change in their personality, but they're still them. Well, we see that in everyday life when your brain is temporarily changed by getting intoxicated or you know, having a stroke or something that interferes with brain function. You're temporarily unable to think as clearly as you usually do. Yeah, or if, or if you're drunk, you may uh, dance at a party and normally you'd, never, you'd be way too shy to do that. So again, exactly. I guess it's like removing a filter on your right. own behavior as well. So where has all this uh, NDE led you? What avenues are you looking into now? I know you're, you're retired from being a professor, but 
I'm sure you're still mentally active. You know, you wrote this book, but where where are you going with these thoughts, and like, where is it taking you? What do you? What questions are you trying to answer now? Well, most people find near death experiences interesting because of what they may tell us about death and dying and what happens after death. But for me, as a psychiatrist, what's most interesting is what they tell us about life and living. And most people who have near-death experiences come back with very strong ideas about what makes a life meaningful and fulfilling. And it's not necessarily what they thought before the NDE. And what it often comes down to is something like the golden rule, that you basically need to treat other people with kindness and with love, and that makes the whole, everything about your life more rich. Now, many people who criticize near-death research say, oh, that's just the same tired old cliches. Well, yes, they are, but that's because most religions are based on the same types of experiences. Almost every religion we know of has some variant of the golden rule, and that's exactly what near-death experiences are told. Many near-death experiences will say, I didn't learn something new in my NDE. I was reminded of things that I had forgotten long ago. And they come back much more interested in loving people, in caring them, in taking, take, becoming more altruistic and having less investment in material possessions and in competition. And I think that if you look at how that changes people's lives, that gives us all some, some hints about what can make our own lives more meaningful and more fulfilling. Yeah, it'd be nice if all politicians had to go through a physician-assisted <laughs> NDE before they could you know, take their position. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because some politicians have had documented near-death experiences and it did change their behavior. And I would mention Mikhail Gorbachev. Hosni Mubarak, or I remember it might be an old oh, before, before that, when, when it was the first Arab-Israeli detente. Um, and when Gorbachev broke, tore down the wall, they really became much less competitive, much less combative after their near-death experiences. Have you heard an NDE from someone that was like a stone-cold killer? a real, real violent or bad criminal and what happened to them? Uh, actually, I have. <laughs> I've had um, communications, written communications from several people on death row who had near-death experiences in, in prison as a result of a heart attack usually. And they are very, very changed, very transformed by the experience, except the fact that they are uh, in there for life or, or have been sentenced to death and not particularly concerned about that. I do know people who have been career criminals, not necessarily murderers, but uh, involved in organized crime, who had near-death experiences and then could not go back to that life and ended up usually, again, going into helping professions, um, often counseling uh, spouse abusers or delinquent children. You know, what do you want to bring NDEs more into the mainstream and increase awareness? Or, like, what are your goals right now? Yes, I, I think we do want to increase awareness, uh, both among physicians and healthcare workers, and also among the general public about these experiences, that they are common experiences, they are normal, they don't involve any type of mental illness. They suggest that the mind and brain are not necessarily the same thing, and that death may not be the end of your consciousness. And that changes how you may think about life and death, and changes what you think is valuable in living. We're also looking at people who have difficulties coming back from a near-death experience, and if you can imagine, it's like one you have a, a sudden religious conversion and your spouse or family doesn't, and that can cause some problems. How has how your family reacted or how have your long-term colleagues reacted or seen you change or, you know, 
or in examples of other people, what kind of conflicts have occurred because of this? I've been very fortunate, family and, and most of my colleagues have been very accepting. You know, they, they know me well, they knew me well before I got involved in this work. And I'm really the same person. I'm just less anxious than I was. I'm much more concerned with people rather than things. And I'm much uh, more comfortable with, with the unknown. And that's made a lot of my family very comfortable with it as well. Uh, they became, became much more spiritual, much more open to these things. Do you have children? And if so, have you spoken to them about this? Oh, yes, yes. Um, as my children were growing up, we had near-death experiences coming to visit us and staying in our house for a while. So oh, wow. they, grew up, they grew up with these stories. Um, and now they, they have, my children have children of their own. Um, so they, they had grew up with, with the, the idea of near-death experiences. When you go visit them, you should call it a near-dad experience. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Do you, do you sense that there's any, I mean, what's left for the science, what's left for society to learn about NDEs? If, you know, if everyone knew about them at this point, then what? What do we do with this, this knowledge? Well, I think there's a lot that science can still learn about near-death experiences. We're just beginning to scratch the surface of the physiology that goes along with NDEs. Um, I don't think you can say that anything physical in the body causes the NDE, but they may permit the NDE to happen. I think we need to learn more and more about that and, and what, what can make that happen. But I think more importantly is what this means for how we decide to live our lives. And I think as more and more people become familiar with near-death experiences and the after effects, they may become more thoughtful about um, how they live their own lives and whether they need to be as anxious about death and dying as we always have been. I think a lot of the difficulties we have in life are due to our fear of dying. And a lot of our competition and a lot of our material uh, possessions are all based on uh, getting the most you can before you die. And if you thought, if you really believed that life doesn't end at death, that in some way we keep going on, that can change your whole outlook towards life. Yeah. Is there a way medically to reliably give someone an NDE? Is it a, you know, is it playing with fire to try to create something like this so that people can have those experiences? Well, we can't ethically uh, bring people close to death, but people have tried other ways to sort of mimic a near-death experience. Um, they've used uh, guided hypnosis. Um, they've used psychedelic drugs. Um, lately, they've been trying virtual reality, and all these things can mimic a near-death experience. But it'd be like um, comparing watching a movie with actually being in battle. You can get a small taste of what it's like, but it's not it's not the real thing, and you know it's not the real thing. Well, have you have you run into people that? I mean, do you wish you had one? I wish I had one. I don't. You know, I don't want to die anytime soon. But you know, after reading your book, I I wish I could have an NDE. So I can feel these things, you know. Well, I'm still enough of a scientist that I want to maintain my objectivity. And I think I would lose that if I had a near-death experience myself. But I'm comfortable knowing that I probably will have one when the time comes. And that makes me feel more relaxed. Yeah, that's good. You know, you mentioned psychedelic drugs. I was just about to mention this, too. When the dose is strong enough, some of the reports I've heard from these experiences are, are similar to NDEs. So I guess that's that's an analogous way or a different way of approaching the ND phenomenon. Maybe in, you know, an intense religious worship, people have their own form of, an, you know, again, it's not an NDE, but their own form of uh, enlightenment that happens. So I guess maybe there are several ways to approach it. 
but it's not easy. Right, right. I was recently part of a multinational uh, consortium that looked at re- verbal reports of near-death experiences and verbal reports of uh, psychedelic drug trips on a variety of drugs. And we found a number of similarities. The drugs that came closest to the near-death experience were things like ketamine and uh, DMT, dimethyltryptyline. And yet those drugs also produced a lot of things that are never part of the near-death experience. And the near-death experience, on the other hand, produces things that aren't part of those other drug experiences. So again, they may mimic parts of the experience, but not recreate the whole thing. Now, I will say that some of the more recent research done at uh, Johns Hopkins University with uh, psilocybin under very, very controlled situations can produce profound decrease in fear of death, just as near-death experiences can. And um, I, I say this with a bit of caution because it's not like you can just take psilocybin by yourself and expect to have these beneficial side effects um, because the way they do it at Hopkins is in a very controlled situation with a lot of guidance and, and support. And in the proper situation, you can get very good benefits from having a, a drug trip. You know, a weird, a weird thought just occurred to me. Do you, is it possible that uh, people could figure out if a dog or other, you know, higher animals had a near death experience? Like, you know, I guess the way you'd figure this out is, you know, if you have a dog that tends to be real aggressive and bite everyone and then, it, you know, it almost dies, but it doesn't. And then the dog's nicer after that. Well, have you ever matter, heard of such a thing? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I know uh, several people who have written books about this, um, who have amazingly about animals that were like hit by cars and then had personality transformation. And unfortunately, we can't interview them and see what they experienced. Um, but it does seem that some animals, some animals are changed after a close brush with death. Really? Is, yes. it, is it similar? They become nicer or they... They don't become more aggressive, do they? Or they become- uh, no, they do not. You know, one one person had a cat who was very aggressive, and she called him Arafat, and uh, she called him Ari for Arafat. And after his near-death experience, he became very loving and, and kind to other animals and to people. So she changed the name from Arafat to um, Aramis because he was just such a loving animal now. That's amazing. Yeah, I wonder yeah. If, if a whole set of living things encounter this in their own way. That's crazy. Yeah. Interesting. Well, all right. I know we're close to the end of time. It's been a really great call. Um, so your book is coming out, what, March 2nd, 2021? That's right. That's right. Okay. And it's available, what, on Amazon and Kindle? and Right. It, it's available uh, on Amazon. Uh, my website, which is www.brucegrayson.com, that's B-R-U-C-E-G-R-E-Y-S-O-N.com, has links to various sites where you can pre-order the book. Okay. Excellent. And then uh, have you done an audio version or is it just Kindle? Yes. uh, Yes, there is also an audio version. Oh, good. Well, very good. So, again, the book is called After. That's the brief part of the title. Uh, March 2nd, 2021, it's coming. And people can pre-order it and uh, they can go to www.brucegrayson.com. Okay. Well, Bruce, thanks for coming on. And uh, the book did, it made me me feel better about my own (laughs) existence. So I really appreciate you writing it and, uh, I think it's super important. I'm very glad we got this chance to talk. Thank you, Richard. I enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.